Good morning. Years ago, I walked into a hospital room in Southern California. I was in the middle of my clinical pastoral education unit, otherwise known as CPE, which is a requirement for ordination here in the Presbyterian Church. You are required to work full-time for a quarter in a hospital as a chaplain. A woman in ICU had requested that a chaplain come and speak to her, and when I got up there, she was sitting in her bed awaiting surgery. She invited me to sit down, and I could tell that she was uncomfortable. After a few minutes of chatting, she leaned in close and she said, Pastor, I need to tell you something. What unfolded was a story of infidelity, of sex, lies, alcohol, one thing after another. And when she finished her tale, she looked at me expectantly, a mix of fear and shame on her face. She had the same look on her face that I see on the faces or hear in the voices of all of the people who come to confess their sins to me, one that is waiting for a shocked response or a horrified look. What the patient didn't know, what most people don't know, is that it is almost impossible to shock me. In fact, it's almost impossible for you to shock any pastor. On any given day, we hear from people about all the things that they've done, thought of, and hope never to do again. Sex, drugs, murder, theft, anger, you name it, we've heard it. Maybe it is part of our unique human nature that we are driven to think that we are special, even in our sin. That only we could have possibly done something this shocking or this bad. But more often than not, when someone tells me these things, my response internally, of course, is less of a scandalized gasp and more of... That's it. Spend more than 20 minutes reading your Bible, and you will stumble upon some of the most inventive and scandalous sins you could ever imagine, all carried out by people who profess to love God and love Jesus. <coughs> but I think part of the problem is not that we don't have a serious, that we have too serious a view of sin in our world, but it's that we don't take sin seriously enough. The texts today come from centuries apart, but they convey the same sentiment. Sin is serious business, but not in the way we have told ourselves it is in our modern culture. If I were to ask most people about sin in their lives, I would get stories of bad things that people had done. Like the Pharisee in Luke, we see sin in Acts. The act of theft, or the act of adultery, or the act of lying. Like the Catholic Church of long ago, we try to fix those particular acts we do that we think displease God through trying to be better. When we don't then commit those same things again, we feel like we are in fact better, that we are less sinful than we were. But David in his psalm and the tax collector in his prayer acknowledge something much deeper and more serious about sin. 
we hear David cry out, I was born a sinner, my sin is against you. The tax collector identifies not things he's done as sinful, but his very self as sinful. See, David and the tax collectors understand sin not to be something they do, but rather who they are. Their identity is not righteous one, it is sinner. 500 years ago, the reformers looked at the church and were appalled. They saw a church that had begun to sell indulgences, kind of tokens that you could buy for forgiveness of your sins or to get a relative out of purgatory or maybe for something you were going to do in the future, like a Monopoly get-out-of-free card. You could stick it in your back pocket for that day you did a bad thing. They saw priests who were taking pleasure in the power of their office, not to grant forgiveness and love, but to require more and more from people. They saw an entire group of people who lived their lives in perpetual fear that they would die on the wrong day or that their baby would die too early and be consigned to hell. A people striving to do more and more good works to defeat their sin and never getting anywhere. The reformers started to think about sin in a different light. They saw it as a bigger problem, a deeper problem. They began to understand sin as some kind of soul-deep sickness, a problem that no amount of being good could fix or mitigate. The term that was coined is total depravity. It is a harsh-sounding term for sure, and many Christians today reject the term. I'm not that bad, we say. But this is a misunderstanding of the term. Because Calvin wasn't implying that we're all the very worst we could be, running around like in a game of Grand Theft Auto, beating people and stealing. No. What Calvin was saying was that there is no part of our life that is untouched by sin. That there is no place inside of us that has been protected from the effects of sin. No good deed that we can do that is purely free from sin. We are, spiritually speaking, totally broken. When I think back on all of the confessions I have heard over the course of my life, one of the most common threads, like I said, is that people expect me to be surprised. And I think this stems from the fact that most people are surprised by their own sin. They're surprised that they have done the thing again that they know they don't want to do, that they know it goes against the will of God. We hear the confusion from Paul himself when he says in Romans, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. We are surprised because unlike David and unlike the tax collector, we have not yet realized the truth about who we are. You see, we are still convinced that we are really good people who do a few bad things. Things that we should be able to control and fix if we just put in enough hard work. But Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, wrote a book back in 1849 where he defined sin as being in despair 
not wanting to be oneself before God. We want to delude ourselves that we're not really that broken. And one of the best ways that we have found to do this, one of the best ways we have found to hide our own brokenness is to rank it compared to the sins of others. Like the Pharisee who lists out the sins of the people and then thanks God that he's not like those people, we too have a list of people that we thank God that we are not like. But in Romans 3, Paul declares with one of his most powerful and disconcerting lines, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Not some, not some worse than others, not some are real close to the glory. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we are all on the same level. When we decide that there are some sins that are worse than the others, we are falling into the same trap that the church did all those centuries ago. We're missing the point that sin is an all-encompassing internal problem. The Pharisee is no better than the murderer or the adulterer, no matter how pious he acts. In our modern evangelical culture, we are guilty of creating our own hierarchy of sins, ones that are worse than others. And we often choose the ones that we can point out the easiest in someone else, the ones that make ourselves feel better about our position before God. At least I didn't have sex with my husband before I got married. At least I didn't have that abortion. Never minding the fact that Jesus points out that interior lust is just as bad as acting on it. Never minding the fact that he tells us that words of anger, calling someone a mean name, puts you in the same danger as actually murdering a person in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't want to face our own woundedness. And so we look to create others who can seem worse than us. And we deny our true identity before God, like toddlers trying to deflect our parents' notice of our problem and our trouble by pointing out what our brother and our sister did. What we miss when we do this, though, is the very freedom that the reformers were trying to bring to the people of God. That as much as it makes no sense, it's only when we can accept and acknowledge, really acknowledge the depth of our own brokenness, of our own helplessness and weakness to soul-deep sin that we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. That we can begin to heal and no amount of false band-aids can cover up our wounds until we're willing to expose them to the healer. It wasn't until a few years ago when I moved to Pasadena that I learned about a man named Father Greg Boyle. Father Greg is a Jesuit priest who has been working with gang members and ex-gang members in South Central LA since 1988. In 2001, he founded what is called Homeboy Industries, an incredible organization that employs and trains former gang members in a range of social enterprises. 
as well as provides critical services for over 15,000 young men and women who walk through its doors every year looking for a better life and a different way. Father Greg recently gave a address. It was at a graduation when he told a story. He said, recently we had an all-day training with six hundred social workers, a training on how to work with gangs and former gang members. I had two homies with me, and one of them was named Jose. Now, Jose got up. He's in his late 20s, and he works in the substance abuse part of our team. He's a man in recovery. He'd been a heroin addict and a gang member and was tattooed from head to toe. Jose gets up in front of all of these people and says very offhandedly, you know, I guess you could say that my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. I guess I was six when she looked at me and she said, why don't you just kill yourself? You are such a burden to me. Then Jose said, you know, I guess I was nine when my mom drove me down to the deepest part of Baja, California. She walks up to an orphanage and says, I found this kid. I was there for 90 days until my grandmother could get it out of her where she had dumped me and come and rescue me. Jose continued saying, my mom beat me every single day of my elementary school years with things you could imagine and things that you couldn't. Every day my back was bloodied and scarred. In fact, I had to wear three t-shirts to school every day. The first t-shirt because the blood would seep through. The second t-shirt you could still see it. Finally, the third t-shirt, you couldn't see any more blood. And kids at school, they would make fun of me. They would say, hey, fool, it's 100 degrees out. Why are you wearing three shirts? Jose kind of pauses. He seems to lose the battle with his own tears, and he stares out at the audience, looking at a piece of his story that only he can see. He says, I wore three t-shirts well into my adult years because I was ashamed of my wounds. I didn't want anybody to see them. But now my wounds are my friends. I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my scars. Jose looks at the crowd and he says, how can I help heal the wounded if I don't welcome my own wounds? How many of us try to cover up our soul-deep wounds with t-shirts of goodness or piety or judgment. If we want to experience the healing of God, we can't keep trying to hide the depths and the severity of our wound. As David cries out to God, he speaks the depth of his sin, the depth of the wound in his life, not simply sins committed against Bathsheba, and Uriah, but against God himself. And he acknowledges his full identity, a sinner from birth, incapable of helping himself or making himself clean. The tax collector stands before the temple, stands before God, and recognizes his own frailty and need for forgiveness that he cannot achieve on his own. In America today, one of the most common reasons given for people rejecting the message of Jesus 
is the hypocrisy of his followers who seek to point out everyone else's sin without revealing their own. And it seems like lately that the church is the first to respond to accusations of sin in this world with the qualifier, not all. Not all of us are racist, not all of us are sexist, not all of us are bad. Each of us thinking himself or herself the exception. But the reformers, the Bible, the very stories we read would flip this in our mouths and they would say, yes, all. Yes, all of us suffer from sin. All of us suffer from its effects on our lives daily in a way that makes us devalue God, devalue ourselves, and devalue God's creations. And we are not exempt no matter how pious or righteous we might try to be. When we can admit this, this reality, what we find is shocking, not guilt or condemnation, but freedom and forgiveness. No longer do we have to create divisions or look for sins in others trying to protect ourselves. Instead, we are free to begin to love ourselves as God loves us, facing our identity fully, and then to love our neighbors with that same generous love that we have received. The truth is that God is not shocked nor surprised by our sins or sinful nature. Nothing we do surprises God, even in our most evil or weakest moments. God knows the truth that we work so hard to deny that without his help, we are beyond repair. But then, when we, when we finally understand how deep and wide the problem is, then we can begin to understand the vastness of God's grace and redeeming love. We can begin to try to wrap our minds around the incredible generosity of a Savior who doesn't hide his scars, but who has healed them and puts them out to heal us. Just before the sermon, we sang a song where we cried out, where we declared our need for God every waking hour. This should be the cry of our hearts every day of our life, a cry of an honest and thankful heart calling out for a healing that God and God alone can bring. Only he can redeem us. And he longs to do so the minute we're willing to share the depths of our wounds. Amen.